Welcome to the Littler Diversity and Inclusion Podcast. Conversations related to the human resource challenges of an ever-evolving workforce. Hello, my name is Cindy Ann Thomas. I'm a principal with Littler and a co-chair of our firm's EEO and Diversity Practice Group. I partner with our clients in the diversity and inclusion space with a focus on advising on, as well as developing and providing legally compliant training and education initiatives. It has long been said that there are only two things certain in life, death and taxes. But come the first Monday of October this year, when the Supreme Court begins its next term, it appears that a third and much more exciting certainty should be added to this list, the court's first black female justice. Last Friday morning, President Biden made good on his campaign commitment to nominate a black woman to the land's highest court in naming Judge Katanji Brown Jackson. And whatever comes of the nomination process for Judge Jackson, the candidates on President Biden's short list of nominees are said to have had at least three traits in common. They are all remarkably accomplished jurists who just happen to be black and female. When all is said and done, the next justice will only be the eighth person in the Supreme Court's entire 233-year history who was not a white man, a significant milestone for diversity in the judicial ecosystem, to be sure. But before starting celebrations about this monumental first, I thought it deserved a conversation because I've got questions. Why has this taken so long? What will having black female representation mean for the judiciary and more generally for society? How do we ensure that this pending watershed moment is not a one and done? And what is it going to take for us to get to a point when it is no longer eventful for a black woman to be appointed to positions like these? To have that conversation, I have invited a very special guest, the Honorable Bernice Bowie Donald, U.S. Circuit Judge for the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. Judge Donald, who received her law degree from the University of Memphis School of Law, is a distinguished member of this select club of judicial firsts for Black women in this country. After just three years of practice, then Attorney Donald won the election to the General Sessions Criminal Court in 1982, becoming the first Black female judge in the history of Tennessee. She was then the first Black woman in U.S. history to serve as a bankruptcy judge when she sat on the U.S. District Court for the Western District of Tennessee. Then, after serving for 16 years as a judge for the U.S. District Court, becoming the first Black woman to serve on the federal trial bench in that state, in 2010, she was nominated to the Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit by President Obama and confirmed in 2011, another first for that circuit. She was also the first black woman to serve as an officer of the American Bar Association and the first black woman to serve as president of the American Bar Foundation. So there is no hyperbole in saying that Judge Donald is truly a trailblazer. Judge Donald serves as a mentor for numerous women lawyers and judges 
and she has earned over 100 awards for her professional, civic, and community activities. So suffice is it to say that Judge Donald has been extremely active in her role as a judge over the past 40 years. She is also notably a contributing author to the ABA book, Enhancing Justice, Reducing Bias. Judge Donald, thank you so much for joining me today. Ms. Thomas, I thank you. What an honor it is to be here and have a conversation with you at this moment in history. I truly feel that this is momentous. And when we think about the journey to this point, it is a cause truly for celebration. It's a cause for acknowledging the accomplishments of so many women and men on whose shoulders we stand. And I am just proud, not just for the moment itself and the individual who has been nominated, but I'm proud for this country to embrace this history. And I look forward to the future. Absolutely, thank you. Before we dig into the heart of this dialogue, I wonder if you would give our listeners a chance to get to know you just a little better. What's your backstory? Well, first of all, I wanna acknowledge my parents, Perry and Willie Bill Bowie, who grew up in Mississippi at a time very different from today. How proud they would be if they could be here to see this moment. But they struggled to raise a family in the times in which they lived when they too were defined by their race. I tell people all the time that our country has always had great laws on the books, but justice is more than a word with four consonants and three vowels. And equality is more than a word with four consonants and four vowels. And while we have always spoke eloquently to those two terms, they have not matched actions on the ground. And my parents faced obstacles. They faced a denial of justice and equality in many instances, but they always taught their children to believe in something larger than themselves and to always do the best that they could. One of my relatives is fond of saying that if, if better is possible, good is not acceptable. And I think they believed that and they lived their life to that effect. So even though I was born shortly after the first Brown case was filed in 1951, when the decision was handed down, I was three years old. And when the remedies phase was handed down in 55, I was four. Notwithstanding the Supreme Court's ruling that separate but equal is inherently unequal, and must be declared unconstitutional. When I began school in 1957, I began school in a two-room cinder block school with grades one and two in room one and grade three in room two. The other African-American children who went to school in our community went to school at a one-room frame church where all of the grades were in one room and had the instruction from one teacher. And through all of that, they managed. And, and I say that and go back to that history because laws are not self-executing. It takes men and women of goodwill 
men and women of commitment, men and women of courage, and men and women of conscience to make the law real in the lives of people. So even with that early beginning, I had a yearning for education and a profound commitment to justice. And so I went to school in 1966, Mississippi grudgingly, I decided to desegregate their schools because the federal government said, if you don't do it, because it is the law, you will not get any more federal education dollars. And so they did. And in 1967, as I was beginning the 11th grade for the first time, I went to an integrated school. I was one of four African-American students who went there to integrate that school. And I say to you, and I use that word integrate, but it simply meant that we sat in a common space. There was not real integration or inclusion, but we were in the same space. We were visible and that experience affected me profoundly, but I stayed there. It was, I know in your profession, you come across the term hostile work environment. Well, it was a hostile education environment uh, for me, but I did uh, graduate and, and I went on to, to college and ultimately because of an injustice that I saw visited upon a child in the juvenile court system, I decided that I would go to law school because I believed even then that law was the great equalizer. Even <laughs> if I had not seen it in practice, I believed that because of the words that I read. I went to school to represent children, I went to law school so I could represent children and make sure that they received justice. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, I must say to you and your audience that as of today, I have never represented a child, but that's what got me into law school. And it was that same outrage at injustice once I graduated law school and began practicing as a public defender, my second job, that same sense of injustice and outrage, a denial of dignity, that moved me to become a judge. I was in court one day as a public defender representing indigent people who otherwise had no voice. Mm -hmm. When I witnessed a judge, really strip a woman of basic dignity. It was a woman accused of a misdemeanor offense, shoplifting. And the judge was conducting an indigency colloquy. She asked the woman permissible questions at first, including the source of her income. The woman replied that she received, I don't remember whether her, word, her term was AFDC or whether it was welfare or something to that effect. The judge then went on to say, I see that you're pregnant now. Are you having more children to get a bigger welfare check? And at that point, I started to listen acutely. And she went on to ask the woman, how many children do you have? And now you're having another. She asked the woman, do any of these children have the same father? Now, I see the stereotypes are looming large right now in your mind, as they should be. Mm -hmm. And her final question was, and who is the father of this child? Now, this was not a paternity hearing. This was a hearing to determine whether or not this woman accused of shoplifting could afford a lawyer. And, you know, I thought at that moment, if people can't expect to be treated with dignity and respect in court and in their religious institutions, where else do they have a reasonable expectation of preserving dignity? No one should have to surrender their dignity in order to get justice. And Justice Berger said, justice should never be rationed. And so at that moment, I decided that 
I could do better than that. And that experience moved me to run for judge. And I've talked way too much, but that's how I got to that first judgeship. Not at all. Your personal journey is an amazing one. And I thank you for sharing that on behalf of our listeners. So let's be clear. And for the benefit of all of our listeners, many of whom are not in the legal profession, there aren't too many women of color who make it to the federal judiciary. Of the 1,400 or so sitting federal judges, 114 or 8% of them are women of color. 56 or 4% of them are black, specifically. Of the 809 federal appellate judges ever to have served, 24 or just under 3% have been women of color. 13 or just over 1.5% have been black, specifically. Of the current federal appeals court judges serving, 10 are black women or 3.4%. As a black woman who has belonged to such an exclusive league, I wonder if you could share your thoughts about these current demographics on some of the highest courts in our land. I'm happy to do that, but I wanna start by sharing a demographic that you alluded to earlier, and that is the US Bankruptcy Court, a small court, but a really significant court. In 1988, I became a bankruptcy judge. And I know we're talking about women of color at this time, but at the time I became a bankruptcy judge, the first African-American woman to do so in the history of this country, there were only nine African-American bankruptcy judges nationwide, one in California, one in New York, one in Michigan, two in Ohio, one in Illinois, one in Wisconsin, one in Kansas, and there I was in Tennessee. You'll notice that there was only one in the entire South. And I had to ask myself, why is it that there was so little diversity on that court? Think about what that court deals with. It deals with economic issues. It deals with helping people get fresh start. It deals with finance. And people project their own biases onto certain individuals. They project their vision of abilities and disabilities onto groups. And I think that has been part of the issue for us as women in these various spaces. On my current court, Again, as you mentioned, I'm the only African-American woman on that court in its history. Mm -hmm. There are two other African-Americans on the court and one Asian-American. So out of a 16-member active court, there are four people of color. Now, when we look at this court, which is one level below the U.S. Supreme Court, and this will be the court, courts of appeals, will be the courts of last resort for so many people because the Supreme Court doesn't have to take an appeal. It's a discretionary act. And very few cases go to the Supreme Court. So the terminus for people is gonna be at the Court of Appeals. I believe to your broader questions, Thomas, that the lack of diversity in the judiciary is a grave concern with regards to the future of the judiciary. When the accused walks into a courtroom there's an expectation that each person will see him or herself reflected in the court, that he or she will receive a fair trial, that the judge will be impartial in his or her decision-making process. 
and that the appearance of justice and the actuality of justice will not be pierced with biases or otherwise. Those are the things that are important. Diversity on the bench helps limit biases and it enriches the judiciary's racial, cultural, and ethnic understanding when approaching various circumstances. And I wanna give you a short story from over six decades ago. An organization then known as the National Conference of Christians and Jews did a survey of satisfaction of outcomes in the court. In other words, they asked people how certain they were that they could reasonably get justice in a court, no matter what the issue, civil or criminal. Whites overwhelmingly said, we believe that we can get justice in court, whether it's civil or criminal, and no matter the court. African-Americans overwhelmingly expressed a lack of confidence in their ability to get justice, be it civil or criminal. The term used at that time was Hispanics, were the next highest group that said, we don't think we're gonna be able to get justice in a court. Asian-Americans expressed a fairly high degree of confidence that they could get justice. American Indians, Native Americans, indigenous people were not included in that survey. Now that survey was replicated about 15 years ago and not much has changed. So there is a real concern about an erosion of confidence in the courts to deliver justice. <laughs> and the perception of justice, as you know, is as important as the reality. I'm gonna digress again and say to you from my personal experience, because when we talk about diversity, people tend to think that it's only important to people of color, but this is important to everyone. When I became a General Sessions judge in 1982, becoming the first woman in the history of our state to do so, the clerk of court, a middle-aged white male, a wonderful man, a man who was concerned about me, concerned about my comfort, concerned about my ability to be successful, wanted to make sure I had an environment in which I could do my job and be perfectly comfortable. And so on September 1 in the afternoon, when I opened court with a very short docket, four cases on the docket, the first person to walk into my courtroom observed the following. There I was sitting on the bench in my black robe, ready to do justice. Just below me were my two minute clerks, an African-American female to my left, an African-American male to my right. Mm -hmm. At a 45 degree angle on the floor was the prosecutor, an African-American male. And ringing the courtroom was my security team, four Shelby County deputies, each in uniform with a standard issue, Smith and Wesson weapon strapped to the side. Mm -hmm. One African-American female, and three African-American males. The young white male came to the courtroom with fear and trepidation, came to the bench. And he, as he looked around that courtroom, his eyes grew quite wide and I could read the concern on his face. He asked for a continuance and I granted that. He went away hurriedly. He came back 30 days later with an African-American defense attorney. Now, that may have been the attorney he was gonna hire anyway, I don't know. But I suspect he was concerned about his ability to get justice in a place where there was no one who looked like him. Yes. Now, people of color have faced these phenomenon all around the country 
for decades upon decades. And we think nothing about it because we look at it from the perspective of the court, but all of the stakeholders, no matter where they are and who they are, ought to be able to feel that they can get justice in any court, in any state, city or municipality in this country. And they ought to be able to feel that their race and their gender has nothing to do with it. But they will only feel that if something resonates with them from a diversity of the court itself. And it's not gonna be every courtroom, but people need to be comfortable seeing judges of different races and ethnicities and men and women and elderly judges and younger judges, they need to be able to see all of that that will help build confidence. What an incredible testimonial to that point. And I thank you for sharing that because that is an amazing story and really makes the point Mm -hmm. about the importance of representation, which is clearly important for everyone in government. So talk to us about, if you can, what is so extraordinary in particular about black female judges in light of what black women have historically faced in this country and in our profession? I think that black women have always been a part of the struggle. We've always been there to push and to pull. We have excelled, we have worked hard in law school. We have historically not gotten the same recognition. We've not had the same access. We've not had the same sponsors and champions. And I think that when we have in the past, and this is just my profession, when we have talked about the struggles of women, people have basically included us and women have made particular strides. But African-American women have had unique issues and limited opportunities. There was a a study in the American Bar Association that culminated in a book, and it was called The Burdens of Both, The Benefits of Neither. And that talked about that inclusion in the whole women's movement, but we did not get those benefits. And so I think today we are at a point where our talents, our accomplishments must be recognized. And we have Uh, demonstrated time and time again, an ethic of excellence. And women are demanding that that be acknowledged and that that be rewarded, not to the exclusion of anyone else, but as a part of this whole inclusion packet that we're talking about. And we are starting to see women as these professionals, because we have always seen African-American women as helpers, nurturers, Mm -hmm. caregivers, strong people, but now we have to step into that professional limelight and be recognized there because it's only then that we can light the path for other African-American women who will still come at us. I mean, I find it in the one sense hardening, as I think you said in your intro, that we will have an African-American woman on the Supreme Court this fall when it opens. That's really important. Mm but there must be a second and a third. We must finally get to a point where things are just happening naturally and we don't have to count. Yes. So that's, that's what I'm looking forward to. Yes. Wonderful. Judge Donald, I know from my own experience as a dedicated facilitator in the diversity space that we in the legal profession sometimes grapple 
with accepting that our brains engage in the thin slicing gymnastics that they naturally do and the unfortunate results that occur in our profession when we don't discipline those tendencies, right? Mm -hmm. You are a frequent speaker on the neuroscience behind implicit bias, as am I. So we both share that passion. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about your mission and messaging in this space. I think that it is important for me as a judge and for all judges to recognize that sometimes we unknowingly are part of the barrier to justice. We, I believe, come to this work from a position of good faith, but as you observed, our brain has that program that is running and we may not be conscious of it, but we are relying on, for this decision-making, uh, stereotypes, things that are accumulated from media, from interactions, from past experiences. And some of this is from prejudices that we may not even acknowledge that we have. When we're making these rapid decisions, we're not going in and using that reflexive part of our brain oftentimes. We're filling in gaps with biases and other things. And that can impact what we do. And we think about this sometimes from the standpoint of criminal law. I just want to make this point right now. It's not just criminal law. Mm -hmm. Yes, there are large issues in the criminal space, the criminal legal space, but there are equally large issues in the civil space. Yes. I'm going to go back to stories. Please. I wrote an article for the New York State Law Journal, and I said there that if we judges, I was a trial judge at the time, would just apply and adhere to Rule 56, there would be a lot more cases decided by the jury fact finders because we're not to weigh and evaluate. But the reality is that all of us and whatever we're doing, we view things through the lens of our experiences. And that is not a clear lens, that is a tinted lens. And it is tinted by our lived and learned experiences. And we project those on to other individuals. And it, it affects motions for summary judgment, motions for dismissal. And we now know that wherever there's the greatest opportunity for discretion, there's also the greatest opportunity for bias. And where are we now in this, in this space? We have Iqbal and Twomley, these cases that tell us how to go about evaluating these motions and summary judgments. And you know we have to factor in certain proportionalities and, and certain other things. And what does that do but give us discretion? And so you and I can look at the same set of facts and based on where we are, who we are, and our life's experiences, we can come up with a different determination and decide whether or not something goes forward. It also comes into effect in terms of who we believe, credibility. That is a huge issue. If you look at innocent projects around the country right now, the credibility that people did not share has led to a lot of people who really did not do it being behind bars. It's also present in habeas matters. It's present from the lawyers on the call and how we deal with 404B material, whether we admit evidence or don't admit evidence. 
even things about whether or not we grant uh, an extension for something. And I want to go to the criminal area again with a, a quick story that will resonate with your audience. I was a trial judge presiding over a criminal case. And as you know, uh, Ms. Thomas, in most federal courts, the federal judge handles the border. They select, you know, whether a juror is qualified to serve or not. So they ask all the foundational questions. Mm-hmm. Um, I chose a different path and I would do the preliminary border and then let the lawyers do theirs. And so on this particular day, I did my voir dire, and then I invited the prosecutor, because this is a criminal case, to do voir dire. And then the defense attorney, an African-American woman, public defender, stepped into the well, and she's a, a, an incredible attorney, incredible, highly skilled. And she stood before the venari, planted her feet, looked them in the eye, and asked the following question. How many of you know what a drug dealer looks like? Raise your hand. Every hand in the box went up and she stood there. And as she stood silent, you could see the hands slowly come down as they realized what they were saying by their actions. Because we know that none of us know what a drug dealer looks like. Exactly. But the person sitting at that table was a young African-American man who looked like he stepped right out of central casting for the role of drug dealer. Now, if the fact finder says, I know what a drug dealer looks like and looks just like you, it's going to be hard for the court to give that person a fair trial based solely on the evidence. Yes. And we're seeing issues where bias can tint change outcomes, can drive uh, outcomes, and can influence interactions. For young partners and law firms, Bias can determine and define their role, their ascension. It can determine who goes on client interviews. It can determine whether or not people participate in certain types of actions. So all of those things can be influenced by bias. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Judge Donald, I'm going to turn the focus sure. on bias, if you will, inward okay. for a moment. How have you personally navigated the dynamics of bias? Implicit? or explicit over the years by any of the players, counsel, witnesses, or even other judges? That has been a difficult journey. I have encountered that in a number of ways, witnesses on the witness stand. And I try to make certain that I deal with it and that I deal with it appropriately. And and you deal with each situation differently. I'll give you a, a witness on the stand, an older man, who turned to me, I was asking a question, and he turned to me and and said, say what, hon? And I said, sir, I am a judge. You may say your honor, you may say judge, but you may not address me as hon. And that was right there on the record uh, because it needed to be dealt with right there. There have been times when I have been invisible to my colleagues, for example, in a uh, social setting, people have come and spoken to another colleague of, of the same race standing next to me and just basically didn't see me. And, you know, and I have sometimes spoken up or sometimes I've made a statement like, you know, as dark as I am, it's really hard to believe that I am that invisible. <laughs> Those are just social things, but in cases, where liberty and justice are at stake, I have to simply press that case, make that point 
argue to make certain that my voice is heard. I may not win the day, but the record is going to reflect that my voice, my analysis, my reasoning has been a critical part of that decision-making. And one of the things I try to do, and this has been one of the biggest tools I've used, is to just try and be bigger than bias, to try to always operate on a higher plane. I interact with all people. And so I'm always on. Uh, I have to be because I represent not just myself, but I know that by my service, other people's abilities, opportunities are going to be either enlarged or restricted. And so I am a very collegial person. That is part of my work because I occupy this space now, but I want others to occupy after that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we have now a a fairly collegial court and I get along well with most people. It doesn't mean that our philosophies (laughs) are the same, Mm -hmm. but from a collegial standpoint, from counsel, I know that it's common oftentimes for men, especially to speak over women, to interrupt to question yeah. and you can say one thing and, and have a man come and say the same thing and all of a sudden it's yeah. a brilliant idea but on the bench i demand respect for the the office i re- demand respect for the position so if someone attempts to interrupt me i shut that down right there excuse me i'm speaking yes and, and that's whether it's a colleague or whether it's a lawyer and people know that about me now i'm kind i'm polite i'm courteous But I also am pretty insistent that you respect the position. And um, I'll have to say that since I've practiced that so fiercely, I don't have much of a problem. Organizations, it's different because you're sitting there without a lot of power. You're just a peer. And in an effort not to interrupt you for this uh, next question, (laughs) because I am sure that you are aware of a study that was conducted by a Northwestern professor back in 2017, Tanya Jacoby making it clear that not even the highest court in the land is immune from mansplaining. The study found that judicial interactions at oral argument are highly gendered with women being interrupted three times as much Mm. by both male justices and counsel. You're familiar with that study, aren't you? I've heard of it, yes. And as, as an update on that study, Judge Sotomayor specifically was the most interrupted justice on the bench during the 2019 term. So I've wondered about how the intersection of both race and gender play into these findings. And I have to ask, as as a woman of color on the bench, how have you handled these kinds of microaggressions from counsel or peers in your own journey? And clearly, you know, as you have been explaining, you address it directly when it happens. I do. And I think that's the only way for me, but I, but I do think it's important. And in the teaching, I try to help younger judges and younger practitioners yes. understand that it's important for them to develop tools to also deal with those issues. And, and sometimes it's um, sensitive mm-hmm. because as a young lawyer, you're making your way, you're an associate, uh, you're in a room where you have probably the least power of anyone in the room. You're seeking to move up. Uh, And so you have to be very careful and cautious. And the burden should not fall solely on those 
young attorneys. Yes. I, I try to teach other people in there too, how to be allies. And were I in that situation as a, as a partner and, and there were a young associate who started to speak, I would say, excuse me, I want to hear from Ms. Thomas. Ms. Thomas, could you please complete your thought? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that acknowledges that, or if someone takes what you said and waits for a man to say it and said, oh, um, you know, John, that was a great idea. I was like, yes, you know, I, Ms. Thomas made that point. And I, I'm glad that John agrees because that really is a great idea. But you can go back and do some reinforcements. But for judges, it's really important to make certain, first of all, that you help yourself be in a position to assert yourself. Uh, if it's going to be in a meeting, I said, get to the room a few minutes early, select your seat so that you take a position of power. Don't, don't come in at the last one. Don't always yield to someone else just because they, they want to be there. When there's an opportunity and you've got something to say, speak up. There are times when the protocol requires people to raise their hand and be acknowledged, but there are other times when one just finds an opening and asserts. But I think it's important to have presence and to be present both physically and in your conversations and your points. And it's important also to be prepared and have confidence because that confidence allows you to speak up and to be assertive because we also have to avoid being characterized as the angry black woman. Yes. It's a delicate balance. It is a delicate balance. Let me shift gears for a moment to talk a little bit about some demographics. My listeners love stats. So I want to share a few. Okay. A Pew Research survey from 2017 revealed that 42% of women in the U.S. say they have faced workplace gender discrimination. Women only make 82 cents of every man's dollar. And Black women make even less, 63 cents for every white man's dollar. Black Americans are imprisoned at five times the rate of white Americans. 30% of people who are on probation or on parole in this country are Black. Black men who commit the very same crimes as white men receive federal prison sentences that are on average 20% longer. You once remarked that, and I quote, as judges, diversity does not mean that your decisions are driven by your own life experiences, but that they add different angles from which to look at an issue in question. So I wonder if you could just expand a little on that for us And with the context of some of these unfortunate realities that I've just highlighted. Those ought to be shocking statistics Mm -hmm. for everyone in this country. Yes. One of the things I'm asking judges to do now is to audit your actions. Every judge will tell you, I don't discriminate in my sentencing. I sentence based on the person's history and the, the charged uh, elements, but there are differences. A friend of mine, Judge Bill Missouri, who's now deceased up in Maryland, received a letter from a white defendant saying, Judge, I think you discriminated against me. Judge Missouri was African-American. I think you discriminated against me. I think you gave me more time because I'm white. And any judge receiving that is gonna be concerned about whether or not they are perceived and, and whether they are fair. He went back and did an audit of his cases. And what he found was that he was sentencing 
African-Americans more harshly than their white counterparts. And I would imagine that that occurs in many courtrooms across the country without actual knowledge because of the bias that we talked about. It is easier to associate black with criminality than it is white with criminality. I use a slide, which I'm sure you've seen from Hurricane Katrina, where mm -hmm. two people are engaged in survival activity. Mm -hmm. uh, there are two frames. One is an African-American, the others are whites. They're engaging in the same conduct, but the paper reported one of them as mm -hmm. looting and the other one as finding. So there's no criminal connotation with finding. Another one out of Iowa or Nebraska, two groups of people charged with burglary on the same day. Three black guys are shown in mugshots. Three white guys are shown from their high school yearbooks in suits and ties. Nothing about that looks criminal, but the other one with the blacks reinforces that black crime association. Yes. It is easier, as I said before, because of bias to determine African-Americans less credible. And if you're not credible, the chances are you're going to be uh, convicted. Yes. So all of these things are troubling. But that same bias we've talked about, Ms. Thomas, it is present in police officers. It is present in defense attorneys, mm -hmm. in prosecutors, in probation officers, in judges. We have got an issue and we've got to talk about this. We've got to develop curricula to work and expose and make aware of all of these things. And then we've got to do a better job of not placing expediency over fairness and justice. We are trying to attain efficiency and that's, that's a noble goal, but we can't sacrifice those fundamentals on the altar of efficiency to get the job done. So these crimes are shocking. I, I'm sure you're aware of the series that was done in Miami by the Miami Herald. They went back to some of the same judges who had sentenced African-Americans much more harshly than they had whites. Yes. But go back to something that we're all familiar with. Remember the Stand Your Ground law in Florida and Trayvon Martin. Mm -hmm. George Zimmerman was acquitted because he used um, the Stand Your Ground or relied on the Stand Your yes. Ground law. There was an African-American woman whose name escapes me right now. She did not shoot anyone. She simply fired a couple of warning shots. She tried to assert Stand Your Ground. She was convicted and sentenced to a fairly lengthy time in prison. Yeah. And you look at, this was the same prosecutor, same community, same law. It did not work for an African-American woman. And so all of us who are stakeholders in the system have to ask ourselves, what is really going on? How can we deny that bias at a number of levels mm -hmm. didn't exist? We can't. Yes. So I want to be mindful of a beckoning docket for you. So in our remaining time together, I want to ask you a couple of questions with respect to the systemic issues. I'll go with short answers. Okay. Not at all. <laughs> Not at all, Judge Donald. I know my timeframes with respect to what awaits you for the day. But I want to make sure, as you do, that this nomination will not be a one and done. So I, I do want to ask you a, a couple of questions in that area. You very likely recall the late Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's answer to the question of how many women justices would be enough? <laughs> and she said nine, right? <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> so, so what will it take to get to the point where it's not so significant that a black woman is appointed to as prestigious a position as this one? What kind of significant disruptions need to happen? I think that there's going to have to be a demonstration of the courage to just keep on nominating. You know, we, we as a nation have said that we shun quotas, but I think on the Supreme Court, when it came to African-Americans until recently, there has been kind of a quota. There's been one, one placed one. And so this is, this is going to get us to one African-American woman. But I think that you have to have people in the mix. People have to see this over and over and over again, not just one at a time. You know, people thought that when Sandra Day O'Connor came, we celebrated that. It was wonderful. And then that became, it became so natural that Ruth Bader Ginsburg was appointed and they served together. And then Sonia Sotomayor was appointed and then Elena Kagan and then Justice uh, Amy Coney Barrett. So it's not a big deal now to see a woman. And we have to get to that point where it's not such a big deal to see an African-American woman, but it's just gonna take that process repeating itself over and over and over again, because there are clearly many, many, many qualified, highly qualified. And I know we only use that word when it comes to certain groups mm-hmm. and, and shame on me for saying that, but there are many, many women out there, African-American, you know, Latinx, Asian-American, there are many, many women of color who are ready, prepared, waiting, and able to do that job and do it well, and to bring pride and justice to the position. So I just look forward to it happening. Right. But we can't properly rely on the government to own this fight, can we? I mean, there are so many other players who've got to be involved if we are going to make the sustainable gains that you're talking about. Well, I think so. But, you know, can we rely? No, I think we can't. But obviously the process says that the president nominates and the Senate confirms, but, but bar groups and citizens groups and others have got to demand this change and lawyers all across the place have to demand it. So your statement is right in one sense, but you know the, the nomination always, we have got to hold people accountable and say mm-hmm. uh, to them, if we're going to be diverse and inclusive, which we have to be, and if America is really going to be exceptional Exceptional means an opportunity for all people who are ready, willing, and able to do that job that they be considered. So that would argue for not just one, but however many as there are who are ready and uh, willing to serve. So what are the role of law firms or corporate legal departments in this fight and this need to be accountable? Well, you know, law firms have a lot of power. They have uh, power uh, of the purse. They have power of persuasion. They have access to decision makers and they need to be asserting that power, that leverage for a diverse and inclusive judiciary at every level. That's what they can do. And I think they need to call out wrongdoing when when people are not considering people properly or not doing the kinds of things that need to be done uh, so that we have this inclusive and diverse judiciary. Yes. We can even go further back if we're talking pipelines, because as you are likely aware, 
incoming law students of color in 2019 were dramatically down from the year before with black students representing the largest dip, just under 8%. And they only make up 5% of all attorneys. So what's the role of law schools in shifting these current realities? We have to look at these feeder systems, right? For oh, the court. Sure, sure. We need to make certain that we are getting law students and providing them the support and the space they need to graduate and do well. And then I can't end this conversation without also saying we have to hold the judiciary accountable. We have a terrible record on law clerks of color. We have not done the job we've done. And people say, oh, I can't find them. Well, you know, you find what you look for. I, I get tons of people applying for, for clerkships. And there's a study going on right now headed by Justice Goodwin Liu out of California and Jeremy Fogel, who used to be the head of the Federal Judicial Center. They have uh, developed a study and canvassing federal judges to say, okay, what are the metrics that you're using to select law clerks? And many people who are saying, I can't find them. People are trying to find people who look like them or, or you know, they, they may only be looking at uh, a couple of schools. And if everybody's looking at the same school for their law clerks, you're gonna have a limited pool. But we need to understand it's important because that's important for the, it's an important pipeline to the judiciary, but it's also important for us, Ms. Thomas. As a judge, I've talked about the limitations of my perspective. If I've got everybody surrounding me who looks like me and thinks like me, I have no one to help me guard against my blind spots. And there are many judges who are sitting all across this country who have no one to provide a check on their biases. And so we need that diversity in our chambers. And if they're in our chambers, that is a line that's going to lead to the judiciary, to the appellate bar, to the Supreme Court bar, and to all of these other places of influence. And law firms have also got to get them in there because how many federal judges come out of the corporate uh, law firm departments? That's another job that they need to do. Absolutely. In winding down, let me ask you this. We've certainly come a long way in the last 80 years when Jane Bolin, the first African-American yes. woman to serve as a judge New in New York, Texas, yes. Right? In 1939 was yes. nominated. Yes. But I am betting that you think as far as we've come, not far enough, and from where you sit, literally, could you share a few suggestions for black and brown female attorneys who may have their eyes on the gavel prize? What should they specifically be doing to make that goal a reality so that we have many more black female judges in the next 80 years? I would say pursue that dream fully, prepare for it. Find people who are doing that thing that you want to do, get advice from them, check out the, the process, know people who control the process, put your best self forward, do not deselect, do not let anyone tell you that you can't do, because you know you, you know that you are capable, you know that you're ready, you know that you will be great, and you know that your nation needs you. And don't just look on one little narrow thing. We are still low on magistrate judges, bankruptcy federal magistrate judges, bankruptcy judges, district court judges. You may start in an appellate, I mean, in a state court or a state appellate court, but find someone who's doing that and talk to that person and talk to multiple persons. I'm always happy to talk to people and give my advice. 
I'm in my fourth judicial position at this time. <laughs> and I have loved each and every one of them, but I love to see people follow that dream and do that because we will make this nation, this judiciary better by our being there. And if we don't do it, that job will not be done. Judge Donald, our nation continues to need you. And last May, (laughs) you announced your decision to take senior status. Yes. Following such an illustrious career on the bench, what does the next chapter hold for you? I hope it will hold for me talking to and inspiring some of the young people uh, who are out there who also want to be judges. I wanted to, to leave while I was still capable of rendering service because I wanted somebody else to share the experiences that I've had and I want them to move forward. But I want to always be there to help, to nurture. But I'm going to be doing a lot of work in the diversity, equity and inclusion and the implicit bias space because that work needs to be done. Yes, it does. Judge Donald, I cannot tell you how much I truly appreciate how gracious, firstly, that you have been in taking the time to share your thoughts about the remarkable journeys that we've been talking about in your own stellar path as a judge and for our nation's Supreme Court and what is to come for it in the 2022-23 term and beyond. Thank you so much. I have enjoyed talking to you and I I know that your audience benefits from the hard work that you do and from the people that you bring into this space to converse with them daily. Thank you for being an excellent lawyer and a wonderful ambassador, Ms. Thomas. You're fantastic. Oh, thank you so much. The Honorable Bernice Bowie Donald, U.S. Circuit Judge for the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. Thank you so much for joining me for this important discussion. I do hope You all have appreciated this podcast as much as I have enjoyed bringing it to you. Please feel free to reach out to us if you should have any questions about this episode or if you would like to discuss any component of your organization's needs with me or another Littler attorney. Thanks for listening. The purpose of this program is to provide helpful information for employers addressing the latest developments in labor and employment relations. It is not a substitute for experienced legal counsel and does not provide legal advice or attempt to address the numerous factual issues that arise in any employment-related issue. To discover other labor and employment podcast series from Littler, the largest global employment and labor law practice, visit littler.com slash podcasts.